Sentire Media. On the 23rd of May, 1992, anti-mafia magistrate Paolo Borsellino was getting his hair cut when he received a call. There had been an explosion at Capaci on the way to the airport from Palermo, Sicily. His old friend and colleague, Giovanni Falcone, had been rushed to hospital. Paolo ran to see him in time to have his old friend die in his arms. It was a rainy day when the funeral procession was held. There was a lot of confusion, grief and anger at the parade of the political elite. Among the confusion, Paolo Borsellino had one certainty. He was next. It was only a matter of time. He doubled his efforts into his investigations, desperately jotting down names and information in his red notebook. He asked to be part of the investigation into the killing of Falcone, and the CSM, the governing body of magistrates, felt it was not suitable. He was too emotionally involved. He waited to be called, at least to testify, to refer all he knew. No call came. Giovanni Falcone's closest collaborator over the years, the one who had helped him among others to set up the greatest mafia trial in history up to that point, was not called. June came along, and his police escort reported a possible breach in security in Via D'Amelio, where Borsellino went to visit his elderly mother. There were too many cars parked in the area. A space needed to be cleared out. The chief of police did nothing. On the 10th of July, a certain Mrs. Pietrina Valenti entered a police station to report the theft of her car, an orange Fiat 126. On Friday the 17th of July, Borsellino's colleagues were surprised to see him saying emotional goodbyes to all of them, perhaps feeling he was being a bit dramatic. On the 19th of July, 1992, Giuseppe Gravina, a mafioso, sat waiting in Via D'Amelio. Just before 5pm, the car of Paolo Borsellino pulled into the street along with another car, that of his escort. They did not consider the orange Fiat 126 parked nearby. At 4.58 and 20 seconds, Gravina pushed a button. The explosion rocked the street and killed Paolo Borsellino as well as his escort. Later, human remains would be found stuck to the surrounding buildings as high up as the fourth floor. Chaos reigned and the area, for some reason, was not cordoned off. People were free to come and go as they wished. Not only policemen, in uniform or in plain clothes, but also journalists and members of the public. Borsellino's bag was handled by various people. His red notebook, containing secrets that could perhaps have rocked the foundation of the Italian state itself, was nowhere to be found.
There is a traditional procession in the town of Monreale, west of Palermo in Sicily, called Processione del Santissimo Crucifisso, the procession of the Holy Crucifix. It commemorates a moment in 1626 when the first procession of the Crucifix of Monreale was supposed to have cured an outbreak of plague. On the 4th of May, 1980, police inspector Emanuele Basile was at the procession, his four-year-old daughter Barbara in his arms. At a certain point, just as the fireworks were starting to mark the end of the event, three gunmen came out of a side street and opened fire on the policemen. These so-called men of honour did not worry about the presence of a four-year-old child. Basile managed to shield his daughter with his own body. His wife Silvana was nearby and mistook the first gunshots for firecrackers. When she realised what was happening, she threw herself between her husband and the assassins. Luckily, a silver-plated agenda she was holding blocked the last bullet. The wife and daughter survived. Emanuele Basile did not. His death sentence had been a 60-page report he had handed in to magistrate Paolo Borsellino, outlining the mafia's drug trafficking business and the involvement of the Corleone Mafia. The investigation had been started by another police inspector, Boris Giuliano, who had also been killed on the 21st of July, 1979. Surprisingly, witnesses came forth and managed to identify the killers, a rare event in an area covered by the Mafia Code of Silence, Omerta. I see nothing, I hear nothing, I say nothing. Armando Bonanno, Vincenzo Puccio and Giuseppe Madonia were caught with weapons that had been recently fired. Their story would always be that they had been out in the open countryside for a romantic meeting with some women. But since those women were married, being the men of honour they were, they would not reveal the names of their supposed alibis. This was the start of one of the most complicated and controversial investigations and trials in Mafia history, constantly adjusted by the Mafia itself. The investigation into heroin trafficking between Punta Raisi in Sicily and the USA involved not only the members of organised crime, but also bankers and high-ranking members of the clergy. False witnesses came forward. A fake ballistic report surfaced and threats were made to coroners, police and to Borsellino himself. His wife, Agnese, said that from that day on, the lives of the family would never be the same again. Paolo Borsellino was 40 at the time, his daughter Lucia 10, his son Manfredi 8 and his youngest, Fiammetta, was only 6. The trial for the killing of Emanuele Basile started in the autumn of 1981 and Borsellino already began to stand out from the other magistrates. He was considered showy, too audacious in his investigations, too troublesome. The trial against the three killers somehow became a trial against Borsellino himself. He was accused by the defence of not believing the false witnesses, of ignoring the fake ballistic report, and it was said that he was stubbornly following his own agenda, his own investigation. At a certain point, the presiding judge, Carlo Aiello, suspended the trial. 
An exhibit of evidence had surfaced, a white stain on the boot of one of the killers, Madonia. Not a Bill Clinton-type stain, mind you, but mud, which supposedly proved that they had been in the countryside. The suspension lasted 15 months. Finally, on the 31st of March, 1983, the three were found not guilty. The explanation was farcical. The conviction of guilt would have been less problematic, if not perhaps certain, if there had been less evidence. Basically, the three were let off because there was too much evidence. Eventually, the three would be found guilty years later after the seventh round of proceedings. Meanwhile, the replacement of the assassinated Basile, Mario D'Aleo, was also killed on the 13th of June, 1983. It was in the same period that Paolo Borsellino was asked to join a new organization set up by magistrate Antonio Caponnetto, the anti-mafia pool which already included Paolo's old friend Giovanni Falcone. Thanks to this group, the investigations that Falcone was already working on would lead to the historical Maxi Processo, the Great Trial of 1986 to 1987, which would put hundreds of mafiosi behind bars. By 1985, the pressure and the danger were mounting, and the state saw it fit to send Borsellino and Falcone into hiding with their families, the sad irony being that they would later be sent the bill for their stay. Borsellino's daughter started to develop an eating disorder at this point. It did not help that her father was constantly under accusation from jealous colleagues and high-ranking politicians, for whom he was becoming more and more of an inconvenience. That same year, another young girl, Rita Atria, the daughter of a shepherd affiliated with the Mafia, lost her father in an internal killing. From that day on, she grew closer to her brother, Nicola Atria, and his 18-year-old wife, Piera Aiello. Nicola, also affiliated with the Mafia, would reveal many intimate secrets of Cosa Nostra in their hometown of Partanna to his wife and sister. For now, Borsellino did not meet this young girl. But the same year in which the Maxi Processo kicked off, 1986, he became the head prosecutor in Marsala with jurisdiction over the area where Rita lived. Here, the magistrates had never moved against the Mafia. Borsellino found a team of young, highly energetic colleagues that saw him affectionately as a big brother, and Paolo found new energy and enthusiasm, scoring successes early on, such as the arrest of boss Mariano Agate in Trapani. The following year, 1987, saw a great victory for the anti-mafia pool with the convictions at the Maxi Processo. But it also saw a great personal blow for Paolo Borsellino. Indeed, that year, famous Sicilian writer Leonardo Sciascia, who had opened the lid on the mafia and introduced it to the world in his book Il Giorno della Civetta, The Day of the Owl, wrote a highly critical article in which he actually named Borsellino and spoke of the professionals of anti-mafia, a derogatory term 
that would stick for decades in the mouths of those critical of the work of judges such as Falcone and Borsellino. 1988 saw another blow when Borsellino's friend Giovanni Falcone was passed over for the position of the head of the anti-mafia pool, and Antonio Meli was nominated and then proceeded to dismantle the operation and break up the investigations. Falcone could not protest. He had to respect the hierarchy, but Borsellino could and did in a public conference. There was no echo of it in the Sicilian news. Not only, but the governing body of magistrates started a disciplinary proceeding against Borsellino, which was only halted when the national government in turn started an investigation that proved Borsellino right. The CSM ignored this result, but decided not to discipline Borsellino. Meanwhile, Falcone was further isolated. The police agents who sided with him were transferred. On the 25th of September, another magistrate, Antonio Saeta, was killed with his son, Stefano. Borsellino continued his investigations, town by town, family by family, climbing higher up the hierarchy, such as when informer Rosario Spatola named a powerful politician of the Christian Democrats, Calogero Mannino. It was in 1991 that the paths of Paolo Borsellino and Rita Atria crossed. In June of 1991, Rita's brother and mafioso Nicola was killed. His wife, Piera, who witnessed the killing, decided to turn informant and went to the magistrates. In November, at the age of only 17, her sister-in-law Rita followed. We cannot underestimate the incredible bravery that it must have taken this young girl to make this decision. Not only was she putting her own life in danger and giving up everything she had known, friends and boyfriend, but she was now going against her family, her mother and all the relatives that were still a part of Cosa Nostra. The first investigator to talk to the two women was Paolo Borsellino. Rita saw in him a new father figure, latching on to him for dear life. Aside from her sister-in-law, he was all she had now. Falcone was now in Rome, which some saw as a sort of exile, but we have seen how, in his time there, he managed to do some more damage to the Sicilian Mafia and his colleagues who would protect it. Borsellino moved to the public prosecution in Palermo, where everything was stagnant. Then, the fearful year, 1992, came around. In March, a high-ranking politician, the mayor of Palermo, Salvo Lima, was killed. Known as the Friend of Friends, he was the intermediary between the mafia and the political and economic establishment. The killing was a sign that the Corleone faction, now dominant in the Sicilian mafia under the boss of bosses Totorina, had ramped up their campaign of violence. On the 4th of April, a policeman collaborating with Borsellino, Giuliano Guezzelli, was killed. Then, the 23rd of May, the killing of Falcone Capaci and Paolo Borsellino knew that his days were also numbered. He went into overdrive, investigating and noting everything in his famous red notebook. It seemed that Borsellino could have been chosen to be the next head of the anti-mafia pool. Too little, too late, perhaps to ask for forgiveness, for passing over Falcone. Could this have been the reason for his death? 
Or could it have been that he was then working with another informer, Gaspare Mutolo, who had mentioned, among others, the name of one Bruno Contrada, police chief of Palermo turned intelligence service member, who Borsellino was horrified to then see wandering around the halls of the Ministry of the Interior. On the 13th of July, Borsellino told his wife, Agnese, that he believed the explosive meant for him had arrived. He added that the mafia would kill him, but only because representatives of the state, including some of his colleagues, would allow it. On the 19th of July, his family distinctly remember him putting his red notebook in his bag. A Supreme Court ruling would later state that he hadn't. In any case, 30 years later, no trace of it has surfaced. Its secrets perhaps lost forever. To this day, there are ongoing trials and investigations looking into the obstructions of justice that have left many aspects of the Borsellino killing shrouded in mystery. Upon hearing of the death of Borsellino, Rita Atria wrote the following words. Before you fight the mafia, you have to examine your own conscience. Then, once you have defeated the mafia inside, you can fight the mafia and your friends. We, and our bad behaviour, are the mafia. Borsellino, you died for what you believed in. Without you, I too am dead. One week after the bombing in Virdamelio, Rita Atria took her own life by jumping off of the sixth-floor balcony where she was in hiding in Rome. Her mother would later take a hammer to her tombstone to try to destroy it. The events of 1992 shook Italy to its very core. The government, not knowing what else to do, flooded Sicily with troops, a strong military presence that only showed how really weak the state was. The old Italian political system was tottering. Investigations starting in Milan would soon wipe out two of the main political parties and change the scene to the point that the period in question is considered the transition between this first and second republic. It was a moment of great hope in which Italy could have drawn back the curtain on years of rampant corruption and heralded a new era. It could have been. The mafia as well, that of Totoriina and the Corleonesi, was about to reach an end. They had gone too far. The man himself, Totoriina, died recently in prison after spending the last part of his life behind bars. With him, many others, including Marcello De Lutri, the brains behind Silvio Berlusconi's Forza Italia party. However, the Sicilian mafia is by no means gone. It is perhaps now overshadowed by more powerful international mafias such as the Andrangheta of Calabria, but it is still there. Many believe that this is due to the fact that the victories of the state against the mafia following the killings of Falcone and Borsellino were not so much victories, but the result of a shameful deal between the state and the mafia. Perhaps with one of the new powerful bosses, to this day in hiding, Matteo Messina Denaro. This negotiation is known as La Trattativa and is still a mystery 30 years later, with many of its protagonists now long dead. That is why the fight must continue, of culture, information, supporting the right organisations, such as Libera, 
which uses lands confiscated from the mafia for new local startup projects and is also an important source of information. You can find them at libera, L-I-B-E-R-A, dot I-T. You can also look into the work of scholars such as Anna Sergi, who has just come out with a new book, Chasing the Mafia, or Australian journalist Stephen Drill with his podcast, The Mafia's Web, who have shown us that the fight against the mafia is not just an Italian battle. If you asked me to name a great Italian hero, my thoughts would not turn immediately to Garibaldi and his military triumphs or Marco Polo and his explorations, but to two men who, day after day, against all odds, did their duty to the very end, trying to make a better society for those around them. Giovanni Falcone and Paolo Borsellino. And to a young girl who gave up everything in the search for justice. Rita Atria. This episode on Paolo Borsellino and Rita Atria is part of the Anti-Mafia Martyrs mini-series of the A History of Italy podcast. It is written and presented by me, Mike Carradi, based on readings by journalist Attilio Bolzoni, Vincenzo Ceruso, as well as writings of Paolo Borsellino and Giovanni Falcone, and articles from the Libera website and the Antimafia website. If you'd like to get in touch, you can do so. Hello at ahistoryofitaly.com Thank you very much for listening to this episode. Sentire Media. Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentire Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. 
Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy, and we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.